This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of uh, speaking with Dr. Michael Fromovitz, who is a professor in gynecologic oncology at uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center, also the head of the fellowship program there, as well as the head of the gynecologic oncology rare tumor program. And today we're going to be speaking about the subject of neuroendocrine cervical cancer. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Pedro. Good to be here. Michael, let's start by just giving us an overview and getting us up to date with regards to the um, WHO classification for cervical uh, neuroendocrine tumors. I know that there's been a lot of changes, and uh, and, and particularly if you can just give us uh, some overview as to the differences between what's a low-grade or a high-grade neuroendocrine tumor. So the WHO has developed essentially two classifications for neuroendocrine tumors, low-grade and high-grade. Low-grade essentially encompasses the carcinoid tumors, whereas high-grade are the tumors that G1-oncologists will be more familiar with, small-cell neuroendocrine, large-cell neuroendocrine, and undifferentiated neuroendocrine. Remember that almost all cervical cancers will be high-grade neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, and in fact, if you see a low-grade neuroendocrine tumor, a carcinoid tumor of the cervix, you really should look to rule out another primary somewhere else in the, in the body. So, in, in particularly in the cervix, then, what, what percentage of tumors uh, are considered small cell and, and how many are labeled generally as large cell neuroendocrine tumors? Because I know that this often comes up. So, the majority of neuroendocrine tumors of the cervix will be small cell. It's about a 4 to 1 ratio. So, about 80% will be small cell, 20% will be large cell. But again, it, it's, it's mostly small cell neuroendocrine tumors that we're seeing uh, originating in the cervix. And I would presume that every time you see a patient with these types of tumors, you absolutely confirm the diagnosis with uh, an expert gynecologic oncology pathologist. Yeah, it's really important that uh, someone who knows what they're looking at uh, views these, these specimens to confirm that, that, that um, what we're seeing is a neuroendocrine because the treatments are so different from our typical squamous or adenocarcinomas of the cervix. So one thing I was reading recently, uh, and I'm not sure that many people may be aware of this, is that uh, cervical neuroendocrine tumors actually may have an association with the HPV or um, human papillomavirus. Yeah, this is really an, an evolving, um, an evolving uh, concept in, in neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, you know, traditionally, they were thought to be HPV-negative tumors. Um, some of the early studies did not show strong correlation with HPV in these tumors. Uh, recently, there's been more studies coming out that show that they may be HPV-associated. There was a, a good meta-analysis by Phil Castle last year, which, which showed that 85 to 90% of uh, neuroendocrine tumors will have HPV, with, um, with most of them being HPV-18. Uh, um, you know, personally, I'm not 100% convinced. You know, a lot of these neuroendocrine tumors are mixed with squamous and adenos, so are we just seeing the HPV that, that, uh, that is associated with the squamous and adeno, or are we just seeing HPV that's so common in, in, in normal services? Um, so I'm still waiting for more data, but there may be a, an association with, with HPV uh, that we're just learning about now. So then obviously then this brings natural question as to whether then the HPV vaccine could potentially make an impact in preventing cervical neuroendocrine carcinoma. And I know that it may be too early to, to determine that, but I, I think it's a, it's a question that might come up. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if 
the trend that we're seeing in that maybe these are HPV-associated tumors, uh, then presumably the HPV vaccine would prevent these tumors, which would be really a, an amazing uh, additional benefit of, of, of the vaccine. And, and as a follow-up to that, um, what, what do you see as the, the most common mutations that are identified in patients with uh, cervical neuroendocrine tumors? So, unfortunately, there's not one overriding mutation that we see in the majority of tumors. Um, you know, we looked at 44 um, patients with cervical neuroendocrine tumors and did uh, next-generation sequencing uh, on, uh, on, on those specimens. Uh, we found that the, 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 most, the, the most common mutation was a, uh, a PIK3CA mutation, which we saw 18% of the time. We saw 14% of patients with KRAS and 11% of patients with P53. There were no other mutations that uh, we saw more than 10% of the time. So, you know, again, there's not a single mutation that we see in the majority of patients. You know, the flip side is is that 60% of patients had at least one mutation for which there is a uh, drug either approved or in development uh, which might target that mutation. So there are some 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 um, targetable uh, mutations, uh, but there's just not one single mutation that we see commonly in all patients. So I think that that's great in that it may offer patients some uh, options for targeted therapy in, in the near future. And you mentioned that you had looked and evaluated this. Is this, this information is published for those who might be interested? Yeah, this was a page, uh, paper that we published uh, in 2016, I believe. Okay. So now, obviously, a question that frequently comes up is, you know, what do you do in your practice? And, and uh, what is your strategy in evaluating a patient that comes to to your office who presents with a newly diagnosed cervical neuroendocrine tumor? So, you know, obviously the board answer of history and physical. Um, imaging is really important. Uh, we do imaging of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. My, my preference is a PET scan, although I can't tell you that there's any data to support that a PET scan is any better than a CT scan. Uh, I just feel that um, you know some sort of imaging of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis must be done because remember these tumors have a very high rate of metastases even when they are seemingly uh, early stage clinically by exam. So ruling out metastatic disease is important. We typically don't do a brain MRI unless there is neurologic symptoms or there's disease found in the liver or lung on on initial imaging. So if 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 essentially the, the imaging is negative and the patient's not having a neurologic disease, we don't do any brain imaging uh, standardly. And then do you do any um, imaging of the bony structures? Do you do any bone scans routinely or only symptomatic patients? Only symptomatic patients or if there's concern on any of our other imaging modalities that there might be uh, bone involvement. So you mentioned uh, particularly starting with the early stage uh, patients. So you have done an evaluation, there is no evidence of any metastatic disease. Uh, for the early stage patient that has disease limited to the cervix, uh, what's your thought process with regards to the role of surgery, uh, the role of um, adjuvant therapy, uh, the role of the combined approach? What, what are your thoughts? So for patients with early stage disease, and a lot of these patients will be curable, um, we usually start with a radical hysterectomy. Uh, we're doing sentinel lymph node biopsies, but a complete lymphadenectomy for those who aren't uh, comfortable performing sentinel lymph nodes is also reasonable. If you look at the SGO guidelines, and it says that after surgery, you can do chemotherapy or radiation, or and or radiation. 
our standard is to really do both. Uh, so we usually follow surgery with uh, radiation, pelvic radiation with cisplatinum and etoposide, and then additional cisplatinum and etoposide. We really feel this kind of kitchen sink approach of kind of throwing everything at it uh, is our best chance at a long-term cure. Because remember, if you don't cure it in the upfront setting, it essentially becomes an incurable disease, and these patients will die very quickly. So that, that's very interesting. So just to, to make sure I understood it correctly, so even in patients that do not have the typical um, high-risk factors that we generally would look at in uh, recommending adjuvant therapy, in those patients, uh, you still do recommend radiation therapy and, and chemotherapy. For almost all of them. I mean, there are some rare instances where we might do radiation or chemo, depending on on certain uh, tumor aspects or our patient desires. But for the most part, our standard is surgery followed by chemo radiation followed by chemotherapy. And to finish on that point, the type of chemotherapy regimen you use would be what? So we use cisplatinum and etoposide. Um, in the past, we had used sort of standard cisplatinum chemoradiation followed by cisplatinum and etoposide. However, there are, are lots of publications and uh, our experience show that giving cisplatinum and etoposide with radiation is, is safe and tolerable. So we essentially uh, give six cycles of cisplatinum and etoposide, two with the radiation, four afterwards. And then just before leaving the, the point of our early stage disease, you, you mentioned central lymph node mapping. Um, is there is there any reason to still do a full lymphadenectomy in these patients, or do we feel comfortable just uh, with the sentinel lymph node mapping? You know, I'm comfortable with just the sentinel lymph node uh, in basically all of my patients with cervical cancer. To be honest, you know, you might argue that no lymph node, no lymph, no lymph node assessment is needed in these patients uh, if their imaging is negative and there's no suspicion because they're all going to get radiation afterwards anyway. You know, so I feel like a sentinel lymph node is a good compromise between doing all of them and doing nothing in someone who's going to be getting radiation afterwards. Okay. So now speaking about the patient who comes in with locally advanced neuroendocrine cervical cancer, what's your approach in that patient population? So these patients, we give uh, chemoradiation followed by chemotherapy. Again, cisplatinum and etoposide, two cycles with the radiation, and then we try to give four cycles afterwards if they can tolerate it. If you look at the SGO guidelines, there is a part of the algorithm that states that uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by surgery is, is, a, is an option, but we haven't found that that's a very good option, and, and uh, so we feel that we can treat definitively with chemoradiation. So now moving towards, I think, a much more challenging situation, uh, the patient with recurrent disease. Uh, I think that this is always uh, uh, a puzzling question for, for gynecologic oncologists. How do you treat patients with recurrent cervical neuroendocrine tumors? So really, there are no standard uh, treatments. Well, the, we think we've we've kind of hit upon what we would consider our standard treatment, which is uh, the three-drug regimen, topotecan, paclitaxel, and, and bevacizumab. Uh, we found that this, this uh, regimen is very active and that we have had some good durable responses. Uh, we've had... Um, one or two even complete responses, although unfortunately those patients uh, eventually recurred. But we are seeing longer progression-free and overall survival with that regimen. Um, outside of that, you can look at other, uh, other regimens for small cell lung cancer, uh, uh, Temidar, uh, Rinotecan, um, obviously clinical trials, but really there's not a lot of good options out there for these patients. 
Now, more recently, there's obviously a lot of talk about immunotherapy. Um, any role for immunotherapy in neuroendocrine tumors of the cervix? So there are uh, some case reports out there with uh, responses to immunotherapy uh, in these patients. However, our experience has been uh, not as um, uh, not as uh, good as some of those case reports. Uh, we've given uh, either single-agent chemo uh, immunotherapy or combination immunotherapy to uh, you know, 10 to 15 patients and have had very few, if any, responses. What What's your discussion um, with the patient with cervical neuroendocrine tumor regarding survival rates and, and long-term outlook these days? Well, I mean, obviously it's a, a much more difficult uh, disease to treat than squamous or adenocarcinomas of the cervix. The prognosis is obviously much poorer. You know, for patients with you know, stage 1B2, so less than 4 centimeter tumors, uh, with imaging uh, limited to just the cervix, so no evidence of metastatic disease. You know, we still have a decent uh, chance of curing these patients. I tell patients probably somewhere in the 60 to 70 percent range. Remember, for a squamous or an adeno, for something like that, you're probably telling them 90 percent plus. Uh, for patients with uh, locally advanced disease, uh, or stage uh, 1B2 to 4A, you're looking probably closer to 25 to 30% uh, five-year survival rate. And then do you uh, change your recommendations for surveillance in patients with neuroendocrine tumors? Um, do you have a, a different timing with regards to the, the visits, or do you do any additional imaging? So unlike uh, squamous or adenocarcinomas of the cervix, where we essentially uh, follow them with uh, physical exam and, and annual pap smears, uh, I'm a little more uh, aggressive with how I follow these patients with neuroendocrine. Again, this is not based on any data that this changes survival, but it certainly does change uh, what I think is the patient's um, kind of psychosocial well-being uh, because they're, they're, they've been told they have a very, very aggressive cancer that has a high likelihood of recurring, and so they really want to know what's going on. And so my standard is to see them every three months in the first year, every four months in the second year, and every six months uh, thereafter. In the first four years, I do some sort of imaging at every appointment. And again, this is not based on any data. Uh, this is based just on personal experience. Uh, I don't know if this changes survival, but certainly it does help a patient uh, to reassure them that there's no evidence of disease at, at, these, uh, at these appointments if we're able to do imaging. And for that type of imaging, your choice of preference is? My preference is a PET scan. Uh, I'm finding more and more that uh, reimbursers are not uh, are not allowing that or approving that, and so a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis is adequate. Now, touching on a, a different subject uh, before we close, um, you know, from time to time we get the question or, or the referral, uh, any role for fertility sparing surgery in patients with cervical neuroendocrine tumors? Um, I, the overarching answer is no. Um, there are occasionally some patients who I think have a very early stage disease uh, who I may transpose an ovary uh, to, to potentially uh, allow for, for egg retrieval in the future. And mostly I do it just to prevent menopause uh, after radiation. But for the most part, there's really not a role for radical trachelectomy. If you look at the any of the guidelines for radical trachelectomy, a neuroendocrine tumor is, an, is a kind of... Um, uh, automatic contraindication or exclusion. Uh, so for the most part, you know, unfortunately for these patients, we really have to focus on oncologic outcomes as opposed to fertility outcomes. 
Well, Michael, lastly, I want to congratulate you for the great work you're doing um, uh, in this uh, rare tumor. And I know you and your group have uh, developed what is called a cervical neuroendocrine tumor registry. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, so we've developed a, uh, a uh, tumor registry for patients all over the world with this disease. Uh, we have over 300 patients in the registry now, and we've uh, had a couple of publications and with more to come. Uh, we really think that this is the best way to change the standard of care because no, no big prospective clinical trials are going to be done in such a rare tumor. And so really it's going to be tumor, it's going to be cohort studies, uh, retrospective studies that, that really kind of guide how we treat this, um, at least for now. So uh, if anyone's interested, uh, you, know, you can email us at nectar, N-E-C-T-U-R, at mdanderson.org to hear about our registry. Fantastic. Um, any closing remarks you would like to make for our audience? No, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today, and uh, I'm always available to speak to anyone by phone or email uh, if you have patients with this disease that, you, uh, that you'd like to at least consult on. So it's appreciated. Thank you so much. This has been uh, Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, speaking with Dr. Michael Fromowitz.